Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Most Accurate Podcast. I'm your host, Greg Smith. The music on today's show is Operation by the band Yuck. To hear the full song and all the other music from my episodes, check out the Team at B-Sides playlist on Spotify, which is linked in the show notes. As always, this podcast is brought to you by 444.com, where early bird pricing is still in effect. I honestly don't know how much longer it's going to last, so uh, if you want to get on that, now's the time. And if you sign up this week for any of our plans, while we have the early bird pricing going, you'll get a $35 coupon to use over at the Fantasy Football Players Championship. The FFPC has all sorts of different draft formats to suit your liking, from high stakes to best ball. And just so you all know, I am working to set up a live stream of a Superflex best ball later this week. So follow me on Twitter at Greg Sauce, where I'll be tweeting out the details for that once everything is set up. On today's show, it's going to be a bit of a grab bag, but I'm stoked to be joined by Alex Gelhar to bounce around a bunch of different topics. You'll be hearing his voice more often on this feed in the coming weeks, and I couldn't be more excited about that. Uh, welcome back to TMAP. Alex, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. As you said, uh, we certainly have a grab bag of topics, but I think it's going to be a fun one, and we're going to make the most of uh, this podcast in this kind of quiet period of the NFL season that we have right now. Yeah, and I spent the last couple episodes diving into some projection talk and some scoring settings talk, like more general kind of evergreen strategy. What I skipped out on during that time was news. Like we didn't talk about a lot of this stuff. And the big point that we have to begin with is Cam Newton signing with the New England Patriots. I'm actually kind of glad that I didn't tackle this, you know, right in the moment. I mean, everybody has their takes when this news breaks and whatnot, right? But I think we're in an interesting spot because we just are now starting to wrap up the Scott Fishbowl. And across all 120 SFB leagues, which are 12-team Superflex, we, we get a good snapshot of what Cam Newton's value is. The earliest he was picked in these leagues was the seventh pick of the fourth, fourth round as the QB14. The latest was the seventh pick of the 10th round, uh, and that was as the QB25. All in all, Newton is going to end up as the QB22 in Scott Fishbowl ADP an average pick of 77.6, which puts him in the seventh round, which, you know, for someone of his name brand and talent in a two quarterback format is super, super late to me. Does that ranking of Cam seem right to you, Alex? No, QB 22 feels feels way too low for me as well. I understand people are concerned with Cam's health and things like that. But, you know, some of the reports we've heard thus far that he's recovering well, he looks good. I mean, I'm sure people have seen his hype videos that he's been posting on social media. Some of them are a little more esoteric than others. But you look at some of the quarterbacks on that SFB uh, ADP app, and the guys that are going ahead of him to me, a lot of them have much bigger question marks in terms of their even upside or consistency. Like Jimmy Garoppolo uh, was the QB 20, for instance. Uh, ben Roethlisberger is coming off a serious injury as well. He was the QB 19. Jared Goff coming out as uh, QB 18, Baker Mayfield QB 17. So I feel like maybe it was a situation where Cam, to a lot of people, was just grouped in that tier with guys. But man, given the high highs we've seen from Cam throughout the vast majority of his career, I would have thought that, that his ADP would have been at least QB 15 or above. Right. And we know the Patriots are a smart organization as well. Like they have a great coaching infrastructure. They have a great offensive line. I think he can easily be a top 15 quarterback for that team. And when I went to do my quarterback rankings, when this news was announced, my initial reaction was to put him at QB 11, QB 12 in that range. He passes physical, like you said, should be healthier than he's probably been since 2017, maybe even longer. And even if you're worried about Newton's health, you can always draft a backup QB in a one quarterback format or in two QB in Superflex. You could handcuff him with Jared Stidham because Stidham's price is going to bottom out. 
But while I don't think injury risk is a reason to fear Cam, I do think there is this one little voice in the back of my head that's worried about his overall volume because, you know, the Patriots do have a really good defense. And I I think that they're going to be able to run the ball a lot behind that stout offensive line. So maybe Newton just won't be tasked with that high usage of a low. Do you think that that's a reasonable concern? I mean, I think that's reasonable, but also, you know, Josh McDaniels was a quarterback, was the coordinator and coach with Tim Tebow. So he's had experience running offenses with running quarterbacks. I feel like that that group is still going to be smart enough to be efficient with Cam. And especially in the quarterbacks he's in that tier with, whatever rushing upside Cam offers from, you know, scrambles or designed runs should mitigate, if not overcome any potential pace concerns with that offense, given how stout that defense is. Yeah, I think ultimately QB 22 just seems way too low. That, that's really where I'm coming down on this. And I look at like the delta between Cam and Josh Allen, and that's a comparison that a lot of people have made with Josh Allen, right? It's like, oh, he's the new Cam Newton, really talented runner, maybe a little bit limited in the passing game. I just don't see why we would be drafting them so far apart. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, 100%. And I'm somebody who's very much on the Josh Allen bandwagon this year, and Cam if healthy, probably has the same, if not a higher ceiling than uh, Josh Allen. We've seen him get there before. And I know we'll get to this topic in a minute, but it's not like Cam needs to be dependent on weapons around him. Because I know some people, especially when Stidham was going to be the starter for the Patriots, were looking at the weapons and saying, wow, there's kind of like a dearth of deep offensive talent here. But when I was looking back at it in preparation for the show, and I tweeted it out, Cam Newton's 2015 MVP season, his uh, skill position players are just remarkable for the fact uh, that he put up 45 total touchdowns that year. Yeah, I mean, it's funny to look at that roster and then look at Mohamed Sanu now and think, man, Mohamed Sanu might have been the best receiver on that Panthers team. Yeah, you know, e- it's easily. It's crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> so let's get into that. Let's get into the weapons. How are you reevaluating the Patriots wide receivers and tight ends with Cam theoretically under center? I, and actually, let's let, let me stop there and, and sidebar real quick. You expect Cam to be the, the starter week one in all season, correct? Oh, yeah, 100%. I don't view there to be, as long as he's healthy, there's no chance of this being a QB competition or anything of that nature. This is, this is Cam Newton we're talking about. This is one of the, the, you know, the top half, if not higher quarterbacks in the league. He's going to be starting for this team. Fair enough. So yeah, that's, I agree with that 100%. Let's talk about the weapons here. What are you doing with the receivers there in New England? I mean, for me, the only one I might feel a little more comfortable drafting is is Edelman. I think his his play style uh, will suit well with with Cam. The, the Cam we were seeing towards the end of his run at Carolina, you know, they were doing a lot more quick passes. They were getting some receivers that could do more after the catch with uh, Cam. I think I like Julian Edelman to fit in that mold. But really, I think this is a case where I forget who coined the expression. I think it might have been uh, the great run for Johnny on Twitter, but. Uh, I'd rather have the syrup than the pancakes. Like I don't, I don't want to invest a ton or too heavily in a Nikhil Harry or even Julian Edelman. I'd rather just get Cam Newton because the big benefit from him is also going to come from his rushing production. Yeah, and that's my concern as well. Is that this is a team that's probably going to spread it around a lot. They don't have one or two weapons, you know, like the Patriots of old with Gronkowski or even Randy Moss way back in the day that kind of stands out head and shoulders above the pack. I expect all of these guys to be usable in best ball. I expect all of them to be reasonable values in drafts, if only because we're not seeing a value spike for Cam yet. Like we said, he's going as the between like the QB 17, the QB 22 in most of these formats. So if he's not being priced up, I don't expect his weapons to be priced up either. But with that said, I think Harry is the one I'm worried the most about. One, because he's still unproven. And two, because... 
I think he had the most hype in the first place. And now that he has a quote-unquote real quarterback or a legit quarterback, I think that he might be the player who sees the biggest spike in price in drafts. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, for sure. Uh, You know, because of his draft pedigree, the draft capital they spent in him, his size and everything like that, people are probably going to be looking at those numbers and those metrics and think, wow, now that he's got a legitimate passer, maybe this is Nikhil Harry's breakout. But I think you said they're both a team that spreads it around the Patriots and they're a team without sort of a clear cut number one traditional option aside from maybe Edelman because there's Sanu and all the other guys they have behind them. I just I wouldn't be surprised if one of them maybe broke out with Cam there if things click for New England. But I'm not comfortable with investing at the probably inflated price those guys are going to have now that Cam's under center. Do you have any interest in the third and fourth string type options at receiver there? Jacoby Myers, Marquise Lee. These guys are mildly interesting to me as late round best ball options, especially now that they have Cam Newton. But I actually haven't drafted either of them yet. But I'm thinking that, you know, this could be a situation where what if Harry doesn't figure it out? What if Edelman gets hurt? What if Sanu gets hurt again? I, I think that we could see one of these guys step up in some outcomes of this season potentially and they're going super late. They're basically free. I'm always intrigued by those types of players. The problem is you can make that sort of case for receivers on most teams. But <laughs> with Jacoby Myers, with Marquise Lee, do you, do you have like a – is there any extra shine on those guys for you? I mean o- only really in late-round best ball things like you said. You okay. know, Jacoby Myers sort of sort of flashed a little bit of big play potential at times. But I, Marquise Lee has been bounced around. He once got referred to as the Obino Tiger by one of his <laughs> offensive coaches. Not really necessary, necessarily jumping at the chance to get a reclamation project there in New England. So uh, only in best ball, maybe Jacoby Myers. But I think, as you mentioned, there's a lot of teams with players like this that I might rather take a stab at that I think could have a bigger chance to succeed. Yeah, I, I just don't draft enough best ball leagues for me to need to dip into those waters, I don't think. I'm, I might still pick up one or two shares of one of those guys. And if any either of them, it's probably going to be Myers. Because like you said, he has that field stretching ability that I don't necessarily see from Edelman and Sanu. I mean, Harry might figure to be that guy, but maybe it's Myers. Who knows? Anyway, let's move on to the other side of the offense in New England. How are you reevaluating the Patriots running backs now that Cam is in town? I'm a little more skittish on the running backs than I would have been if Jared Stidham was under center. Uh, Well, because one, because Cam's going to eat up some of the rushing volume there as well. And uh, probably some of the rushing touchdowns as well, because Cam Newton... Uh, throughout his career has probably been the best goal line threat. I think Greg Rosenthal has said this on the Around the NFL podcast too, but you look at his abilities both to throw the ball and run the ball at the goal line, and he is just unparalleled in that ability in the NFL over the course of his career. But before Christian McCaffrey arrived in Carolina, Cam was only on average throwing 12 to 13% of his uh, targets every season to his running backs. So that concerns me a little bit about normal PPR dynamo James White. And then with Cam vulturing potentially some rushing volume in general and touchdowns, it also worries me about Sony Michelle. So even more so than in years past, I think I'm a little bit scared off of uh, the New England running backs. Yeah, I mean, you said it all. He's going to vulture goal line work from Sony Michelle and from Damian Harris. And because he might use his scrambling ability when Tom Brady might have checked it down to James White or Rex Burkhead, he's going to diminish their value as well because they're probably not going to be catching as many passes. And, of course, we just have the the tried-and-true tradition of Patriots running backs where there are four of them, and just sorting that out in the first place is such a headache that I think you just maybe take one of the the guys who was going later, and in this case, that's typically Damian Harris and Rex Burkhead. Again, best ball situation only or uh, sort of speculative season-long pick 
uh, towards the the later rounds. I think that makes some sense, but I'm probably out on Sony Michelle and James White where they're going at this point. If James White were to fall far enough in a PPR league, I would be much more open to drafting him because you know it's it's hard to say whether in the earlier parts of Cam's career it was just the fact that he didn't have great pass catching running backs and then he got one of the best in Christian McCaffrey. But James White would be a far and away probably the best pass catcher Cam Newton had out of the backfield during his early run in Carolina. So there's certainly a story you could tell yourself where it's just kind of part of the offense. James White's a key cog in the machine, and he's still just going to get a lot of short passes and move the chains and be involved. But even still, like I would need for him his value to fall a little bit more in drafts before I'd feel comfortable taking him in that spot over some other potential pass catching guys in that range who might have higher upside. Yeah, and that does make sense. And and there is also maybe part of that story you're telling yourself where Cam Newton doesn't run as much this year. He doesn't use that scrambling ability quite as much because of all the injuries he's had to deal with and all that in an effort to stay healthier and, and make it through the season uh, in this first year back. But we'll see. Uh, we kind of kicked this off, this discussion of Cam Newton off with uh, by referring to where he was going in the Scott Fishbowl. And I just want to check in with you, Alex, on our next grab bag topic here. Uh, other takeaways you might have from... SFB, uh, just at a base level, are you happy with your draft? And even if you are, what's one thing you would do differently if you could go back in hindsight? Well, I think it's an annual tradition for me to hate my SFB team immediately after drafting it, <laughs> just because you get filled with regret. Like the scoring system, what's so fun about the Scott Fishbowl is that the scoring system creates just myriad new strategies for people trying to not only maximize the scoring system, but then also be able to stand apart from the 1400 teams or whatever in it at the very end so i think you'd certainly end up with a lot of buyers remorse or things like that but despite my initial reservations i do like my team i think my strategy worked out for the most part i didn't put too much of an emphasis on the completion percentage changes for quarterback scoring i was kind of also kind of the way the board dictated to me i don't know if you looked had a chance to look at my team before we chatted here but I have a lot of potential high-volume receivers at the top of my list that I'm going to try to fill my flex spots with because guys that I got at values like Cooper Cup and Keenan Allen, while the bloom is a bit off of Keenan Allen's rose, he's still probably going to catch a lot of passes and move the chains a lot. So having those value guys, I think, is really going to pay off for me. I went with a pseudo zero RB, and I kind of wish I had maybe gotten a running back sooner because some of the options later left me a little wanting so I was I was doing some swing for the fences types like taking Darius Geis and and uh, Jarek McKinnon who we'll jump into later but uh, overall it's it's fun and I think my favorite part about it is just seeing all the different strategies play out even within your own league oh absolutely and it, it is super regret inducing especially because of Josh Hornsby's app like this Roto Grinders SFB app is amazing because you can look at anyone's team and everybody's posting their screenshots on Twitter you just see some of the values that other people get on certain players, and you're like, well, well, heck, I wanted that guy too, but he was gone right. in the fourth round, and you got him in the eighth round. Like, what gives? Like, this isn't fair. But because there's so much variability between these different leagues, like, it's awesome because you can talk yourself into all these different potential strategies of winning. And I, I am looking at your team. I like your draft. I don't like some of the players, but... What do I know? You know what I'm saying? Who are, who are some of the ones you don't like, out of curiosity? Well, I'm not a Josh Allen guy. We, we touched on oh, him with reference okay. to Cam Newton. I've talked about that on the podcast before, but the inaccuracy with him, especially in this format, is something that completely scared me off. Now, with that said, you got two of my favorite, or actually three of my favorite value QBs late in Joe Burrow, Nick Foles, and Tua. So if one of those guys hits, I think you're fine. If two of those guys hits, 
you're great. And if I'm wrong about Josh Allen, you're great. I, I really yeah. like the receivers you got up top, Devontae Adams, Allen Robinson, Cooper Cup, Keenan Allen. I totally agree that those four guys specifically fit this format very well. High volume, lots of first downs, lots of receptions. And I think that's exactly what you're looking for from your receivers. Now, I went a little bit of a different direction. I did go heavy on running backs early. Uh, three of my first four picks were running backs. Uh, McCaffrey at 101, Austin Eckler, DeAndre Swift. Uh, I didn't take my first wide receiver till round five with AJ Brown. But uh, overall, I, I am generally happy with my roster. It's kind of what I planned out to do. And because I didn't get to take those high volume receivers like the ones you got, I had to throw a few darts at wide receivers who might end up just being the wide receiver one or the wide receiver two for their teams, even though they weren't priced as such. Like Julian Edelman, like Jalen Ragor, uh, like Golden Tate, even Denzel Mims. I think there's a case to be made for him being uh, the top Jets receiver this year with everything they've got going on. Although I, I would say Jamison Crowder is the favorite there. I, I could talk myself into Mims. I guess is what I'm getting at. But um, yeah, I, I like the variability as well. Um, I actually that question about what we, what you would do differently. I can't remember if you gave a, a concrete answer there. Is there is there a pick you want back? Uh, you know, it might be, like I said, I just kind of generically mentioned that I would maybe go running back a little more early just because I feel like with my roster, I ended up, I kept loving the wide receiver value and punting on taking running backs. And then the options, you know, runs would happen and the options would thin out so quickly for me. So if Damian Williams in Kansas City, for instance, still holds off Clyde Edwards-Hilaire for a little bit, that's going to be a solid pick as my RB2. And if Darius guy stays healthy and holds off Adrian Peterson and, oh, God, a blanking Antonio Gibson there, like, that'll pan out to be a solid pick as well. And Jordan Howard or Jarek McKinnon, but also there's an easy situation where I have, am getting, you know, nothing from my <laughs> running back position. So maybe, maybe instead of loading up on so many receivers, like, instead of Cup taking a running back there, I don't remember who was on the board, uh, you know, pick the fifth round in my Scott Fishbowl feels like an eternity ago, but potentially not ignoring the the running back position quite so much. Now, one thing we have in common is we both waited a long time to get our tight ends, and this is a tight end premium format. Uh, we both took our first one in round 11. You took TJ Hawkinson, I took Blake Jarwin, and that is one of my potential regrets here. It's probably not the one that I would, if I got one do-over, it wouldn't be to take a tight end earlier, but... With that said, I did consider taking Darren Waller at the 4-5 turn instead of either uh, DeAndre Swift or A.J. Brown. But because you need to start more wide receivers, I felt like I needed to take at least one wide out there. And that put me to the decision of Swift versus Darren Waller. And I'm sorry, I just love DeAndre Swift too much, especially in this format where he should get a lot of receptions. And because he's getting work as a receiver and a rusher, he should get a lot of first downs in both phases of offense there. I, that That's kind of my 1B regret. My 1A regret mm -hmm. is taking Matt Ryan at the 2-3 turn. I think I just got a really? little too ner nervous about the quarterback depth issues related to those uh, passing completion scoring settings. And not to say that I think Matt Ryan was a bad pick there, but I wish I had just risked it a little, risked it a little more, taken a wide receiver there. I could have had uh, DeAndre Hopkins or Tyree Kill and then waited to get my QBs later and taken more of a late-round QB approach. But we'll see. I would agree with the tight ends, especially waiting, uh, because I there were a couple guys I had circled. Darren Waller was one of them, obviously the, obviously the elite guys. But otherwise, I just didn't feel like it was necessary to pay up for some of those mid-tier tight ends who might not give me as much of a week-to-week -week advantage. And that's why I, I kind of shot for the moon with some of my later tight ends. Like I said, I took TJ Hawkinson. He's coming off an injury. Tyler Eifert, who knows how he's going to fit in with the new system. He's also been injured every year since the dawn of 
time <laughs> uh, and some, some other guys like that. So, you know, where I can hopefully do my best to pick and choose the tight end starter since I missed out on one of those big guys and and mitigate some of that uh, point discrepancy there by not having an elite score at the tight end position. Well, yeah, and that brings me to the next question I wanted to ask you, which was what other lessons you think we can take from SFB and apply to more or less typical leagues, you know? Because, like, not everybody gets to play in the Scott Fishbowl, right? And not everybody has to deal with these wacky scoring settings. Most of our listeners don't give a, a crap about what we're talking about right now in terms of our teams, but I think that we can impart some advice here from our experience here. And and for me, it has to do with tight ends and specifically the tight end premium scoring that Scott uses in these formats. I think that that's one of the most misunderstood things out there in the fantasy world these days. Like tight end premium does not and or should not raise the value of all tight ends because most tight ends still just don't have all that much volume in the first place. So even if your tight end one, TJ Hawkinson, or mine, Blake Jarwin, has a 10-target game in week one and scores a ton of points because he's getting you know that premium extra PPR for his catches, that doesn't necessarily mean he's going to score like that every week because tight ends just aren't used like that. They're not targeted like that. You still only need to start one in your leagues. And for that reason, I do think it was still correct to largely fade the mid-tier tight ends like you and I both did. Now, if I could have gotten Kittle or Mark Andrews or Travis Kelsey at the 2-3 turn, I absolutely would have taken one of those guys. But outside of those big volume hog tight ends, I just don't think the tight end premium matters as much as other people think. So that, that was one takeaway for me that I think you can apply to other leagues. Even if you're not using tight end premium, just understanding that tight ends are used less than other positions. And because you only have to start one, it just isn't as important as the other positions typically. Does that make sense to you? And are there any other similar sorts of takeaways that you could take from your SFB experience and impart to listeners who are in more traditional leagues? No, I think you're spot on with the tight end position kind of being a bit of a, like a, like a bait and switch there when it's the tight end premium, uh, because all tight ends are not created equal in that scoring system. But I think for me, one thing that was nice taking away from this is that there is a lot of potential good wide receiver depth that I think people are ignoring very late in our uh, in our drafts right now. Yeah, um, I know you drafted one of the guys that I like late, um, and that's Kenny Stills uh, coming up way late in a lot of these drafts. There's a lot of guys I think that are like Stills, or maybe they're being overlooked in offenses where players moved around in free agency, or maybe just kind of targets got vacated that could end up being really, really solid contributors. So if you you know, are combating a run or something in the middle of your draft and feel like you're worried about waiting maybe for filling out some of those position spots, especially at wide receiver or tight end, I think there's more depth than um, we might otherwise think later in the draft at some of those positions. Absolutely. Yeah, that was definitely a key point of strategy for me in this draft was aiming for those less settled wide receiver groups and hoping that I hit with Jalen Rager in Philly, Golden Tate in New York, Denzel Mims with the Jets, uh, Kenny Stills, Miles Boykin. These are guys who could just see their targets go up by default this season, and I think that that makes them values. And you did a lot of the same with Kenny Stills, with John Ross, with Mohamed Sanu. Uh, I think that there's room for all these guys to outkick their cost, for sure. Um, Let's move off SFB unless you got anything else, Alex. What do you say? No, I think that was great. Uh, everybody should be sure to follow it and check it out. Scott uh, does a lot of great work uh, through SFB for Fantasy Cares and other charities and initiative. And it's just a really fun draft and time period to have in July when the NFL season is otherwise a little quiet. 
Yeah, it's the start of redraft season, and, and that's why we all love it, and that's why we kind of can't help talking about it. But uh, let, let's get into some more news items, and the next up is the trade demand from Raheem Mostert on the Niners. And this is interesting because it happened midstream in SFB drafts, so it's tough to read too much into the ADP data we're going to get back from this on the Niners running backs compared to like what we were talking about with Cam Newton, right? Like the Cam news was known and his value was, should have been sorted out before those drafts began with the Niners that kind of happened in the middle. So like, I'm sure where you got Jarek McKinnon, he might've gone higher if we, if the Raheem Mostert trade demand had happened like a week earlier, you know what I mean? So I guess just in general, what is this doing to your evaluation of the 49ers backfield? And let's start with the the top guys, Raheem Mostert himself and Tevin Coleman. Where would you draft those guys in light of this news? I would draft them lower than their ADPs. And that was kind of my general approach going in. I was very worried about this backfield in terms of how the workload is going to be split up. Because last year was such a mixed bag. We had Matt Breda weeks. We had Tevin Coleman weeks. We had Jeff Wilson vulturing touchdowns. We had... Mostert's epic run at the end of the season and I just kept watching Mostert's ADP during the offseason continue to climb to to frightening levels especially when you consider that he only had three games with 15 plus touches he scored a lot of points at the end of the season but that's because he had seven touchdowns in five games and he only crossed 10 plus touches in uh, five of those games as well he never hit more than three targets Tevin Coleman led all San Francisco backs with 30 targets, which ranked 42nd in the NFL in RB targets. So I was just, there was not a clear front runner in this backfield. And now Mostert demanding a trade kind of uh, muddles that even more. And it's just a backfield I'm generally staying away from unless one of them falls several rounds, potentially past where their value would be, much like McKinnon did to me in SFB. Yeah, I think you have to drafts Coleman ahead of Mostert at this point, which wasn't the case beforehand. Like you said, yeah. Mostert's price was going way up. But I, like you, I'm really wary of pushing Coleman too high up my rankings because it's still going to be a committee. We don't know what's going to happen with Mostert. Yeah, it just makes this kind of a mess. It's probably a stay away. Now, with that said, if these guys fall far enough, they're going to become values. And because there's this unknown in something like a best ball format where you don't have to worry about when to start them, I think they're still worth going after if the price stays low enough. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out. If Coleman climbs up to where Mostert was before, how far Mostert falls, because even if Mostert does get traded, you know, running back isn't like wide receiver. You don't have to get a ton of reps in with your new QB or your new coach to succeed as a free agent running back. And so I, I think there is still potentially value for him, whether he stays with the Niners or ends up somewhere else. Yeah, I, I even if he stays with the Niners, which is probably the best result for all parties, I still just best ball is really where you want these backs, because like you said, then you don't have to worry about starting them. If it's a Coleman week, you get the points for Coleman. If it's a Mostert week, you get the points for Mostert. But so many of us have, and especially me as a Packer fan, have that NFC championship game seared into our minds where Mostert just ran through the Packers defense for 220 yards and four touchdowns, that it's hard to remember that he was only getting like 50, 60 yards a pop, but he was finding the end zone and that epic run down the, the stretch to end the season. So I just, uh, you know, I, I worry about that offense and how multiple and, and clever Kyle Shanahan is that they're going to give it to anybody consistently. And in, in redraft leagues with their prices, it's probably just going to be more, more pain than, than glory. So with that in mind, let's dig a little bit deeper into their depth chart because there are more running backs here we need to talk about now that Mostert might be gone. 
which of these later round Niners RBs are you most interested in? We, I mean, we might have spoiled it with your Jarek McKinnon pick and SFB, but they've also got Jeff Wilson, Jamichael Hasty, and if you want to live that fullback life, Kyle Juszczyk. <laughs> well, yeah, the, the McKinnon pick and SFB is a pretty big spoiler for me. I think just of the ones there, you know, he, ha- he signed the big contract. We've seen flashes of his great talent in his time at Minnesota. Um, he, he's a dynamic athlete. I think he had a massive, you know, spark score. And it just could be the kind of case where he's been waiting in the wings, dealing with all these injuries. And if he gets a chance to flourish, like he's never really been in an offense that can hum as smoothly and create as many openings and opportunities as this San Francisco offense in its current iteration. So he's the type of player that I I look at his past production and like potential future upside if he stays healthy. Uh, And he's the one I would target out of those. Yeah, my worry is just that all those injuries that you talked about have sapped his athleticism. I think that's a possibility. And for that reason, a little bit more interested in Jeff Wilson because I don't think the hype is going to be there quite as much. He's essentially the only true incumbent uh, as a, you know, a rusher who was involved with the Niners offense last year. He averaged nine and a half opportunities in his first two games last season. That's carries plus targets. And he spiked both of those games with two touchdowns each. But keep in mind that Tevin Coleman got injured week one. Jarek McKinnon got hurt way before that in the offseason. And, and that's the main reason Wilson was getting run and scoring TDs in weeks two and three last season. Regardless, that goal line ability for Wilson is legit. And that's why I'm pretty intrigued here because it traces back to his college days at North Texas where he found the end zone 15 times in 2016 and 16 times in 2017. And if you look at the more basic stats for him, his yards per carry for a college player were pretty good too. I think he might just be one of those guys who's good at football enough to you know, make up for whatever athleticism he might not have. Now, with that said, Jamichael Hasty uh, isn't as fast as Mostert, but he's a, he's a lot faster than Jeff Wilson. And I do think that that extra <laughs> speed that Hasty offers probably makes him more of a proxy for the types of running back touches, we might have expected Kyle Shanahan to scheme up for Mostert. So if Mostert is gone and McKinnon can't get healthy, Hasty might be that player who busting those big runs outside on, on, on zone scheme. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, I mean, you, you talked about all the positives with Jeff Wilson, but when you looked at all those touchdowns he scored in that week's span, they were from 4-4-2 and one yards out. So he wasn't getting as much opportunity between the t- 20s which might be would, I would probably rather chase the upside with uh, Hasty there because if he's getting involvement in maybe the passing game and he's churning out a lot of yards through there and has the potential to hit those big touchdown plays, it feels like he's going to have a better path to fantasy success than the offense getting inside the five-yard line, which might be what Jeff Wilson needs next year to, to kind of return on our fantasy investment. Yeah, that's fair. And Hasty's probably going to be cheaper in drafts than Wilson just because he's more of an unknown. So I, I do think that in terms of value or, or potential upside relative to value, Hasty's probably the pick, but I don't know. Like I'm, I'm just, maybe I'm just nostalgic for those true goal line back type seasons like Jerome Bettis back in the day. Like if Jeff Wilson can do that for the Niners this year, like I expect the Niners to be good again and, and not really fall too much a victim to, you know, the, the Super Bowl hangover. And if Wilson's their goal line back, maybe it works out for him. But I think the big takeaway here, and, and maybe we're, we've talked too much about these running backs at this point is that we're both a little wary of all these guys. And it's probably a situation to stay away from except in, you know, select scenarios where the prices like really drop on some of these guys. Right. Yeah, absolutely. 
Okay. Uh, have your opinions changed on any other Niners players in reaction to Mostert's trade demand and uh, the Jones fracture that Debo Samuel suffered? Uh, I think that this is one of the few teams where we have multiple pieces of news. And so there are other potential gains here outside of the running back position in San Francisco. You know, as far as their pass catchers go, other than George Kittle, Debo was really the only one I was interested in just because he flashed so much talent and potential in in an interesting fantasy way with his abilities after the catch and on the ground taking uh, handoffs and stuff. He was able to churn out a lot of extra yards and make some big plays for touchdowns. But with that Jones fracture, I'm really going to be pumping the brakes on potentially drafting Debo until we find out more how his recovery is going. You know, that's that can be a tricky injury for players like him to recover from. And then I really, with him being not knocked or you know taking that nick, I don't really want to jump in on anybody else, even their their veterans or the the rookie Brandon Ayuk is who they drafted there, right? Yeah, for for me, I'm with you on not really digging too deep on the other receivers or the other wide receivers, I should say. But this does cement Kittle as a viable second round pick for me in most formats or, or even first round if you're talking about tight end premium. He is actually going to be my tight end one, I think, ahead of Travis Kelsey, mostly because it's fun and because I'm a Niners fan. Like it's it's okay to be hot takey when you're talking about like a 1A and 1B of, of Kelsey and Kittle. Uh, right. but, but I do think that Kittle is going to be that guy. And based upon the kind of nebulous situation in the backfield there, I do think this does give me a little bit more interest in Jimmy Garoppolo. Uh, we discussed this on a previous episode with TJ Hernandez, how Jimmy G's ceiling is probably higher than most fantasy owners realize based upon the division he plays in, based upon the fact that their defense should probably be worse this season. They might have to throw a little bit more. It's another year deeper working with Kyle Shanahan for Garoppolo. I, I am intrigued by him as one of those mid-tier quarterbacks to go after. Uh, with that said, quarterback is super deep, so this is more applicable to two quarterback formats than one QB where you can get away with a lot of different guys in that range. Yeah, I mean, you look at Jimmy G had a pretty solid year last year, nothing super special from fantasy, but he also only threw the ball 476 times, felt just short of 4,000 yards, uh, 27 TDs to 13 interceptions. If, as you mentioned, just based on kind of the ebb and flow of the NFL since the 49ers were so run heavy and were very efficient on a low number of passes— Maybe their defense is worse. He does have to chuck the ball, say, 525 times and gets his yards up to closer to 4,500 and touchdowns into the 30s. Uh, that's going to be a big boon, especially given how late in drafts he's going. Yeah, and, and I'm, I'm very interested in that. Uh, let's move off the Niners. Let's move over to Philly. And it doesn't sound like Deshaun Jackson is going to be cut or suspended as a result of his anti-Semitic social media posts. But the rumors of those possibilities when he went down that road got me thinking more about the receiver pecking order in Philadelphia, especially because Jackson still has to qualify in our minds as an injury risk. He hasn't played a full game or a full 16 game season since 2013. So on that note, I, I kind of want to treat this more as a hypothetical. If Deshaun Jackson one way or another lands outside of the picture in Philly, whether by injury or some other reason, how, do, how would you envision their target distribution shaking out? I don't envision it shaking out in a way where it's still going to have a massively impactful shift to another receiver. They've got, you know, the target vulture of Zach Ertz and Dallas Goddard there at tight ends that, that command a bunch of volume in that offense. And then they, unless Jalen Regor really pans out, they don't have a standout guy anymore to kind of command that where they'll be able to spread it out a lot more. Alshon Jeffrey's 30 years old now. He's played much like Deshaun has only hit 16 games once in his last five years 
He hasn't crossed a thousand yards since 2014 and only has one year with more than six touchdowns in that span. The jury's out on JJ Arthago Whiteside. And then beyond that, you know, like you got Jalen Regor at a decent value in SFB, but much like with Cam Newton, this is a this is a situation where I'd rather just draft Carson Wentz, who has all those options, than trying to put all my eggs in one of those individual baskets to work for me on a week to week basis if it's a format that isn't best ball. Yeah, that all everything you just said is why I am starting to come around on Regor a little bit. That's why I took him in SFB. Uh, I'm not looking to fade Zach Ertz quite as much as I was before, but I'm still not really actively targeting him at his cost either, mostly because spending up just isn't how I like to attack the tight end position in drafts, also evidenced in Scott Fishbowl. But <laughs> like you said, this is one of those situations where I don't think there would be a, a clear winner or loser if DJX wasn't there. So maybe let's try to apply this line of thinking to other teams. Who are a couple other receivers you like who could potentially gain a lot of value in a I mean, I'm going to use the word handcuff here. I don't know if that's really appropriate for wide receivers, but a receiver in that sort of handcuff, quote unquote, situation uh, where, you know, some other receiver from the team underperforms or gets hurt. And that leads to a big value shift uh, with the other receivers on that squad. So I think one of the there's there's a group of three guys um, that come to my mind first for the situation. And it's John Ross, T. Higgins and Auden Tate for the Bengals, because Aside from Tyler Boyd, who was their number one last year in place of A.J. Green, you've got the aging A.J. Green, who's dealt with a lot of injuries. Granted, reports are he's well and healthy, and if he is, he should be the number one guy for Joe Burrow. But we saw Joe Burrow in his collegiate career be able to put up you know, very gaudy numbers and hit a diverse array of targets. So in the event that one of those guys falls down or maybe they want to push the ball more downfield and get John Ross or T. Higgins involved more over Tyler Boyd, I think that could be a case where where one of those guys could step up in the event of an injury or just one of those other guys kind of taking more of a back seat. Yeah, we're in lockstep. The Bengals were at the top of my list here, specifically Boyd and Higgins. I think that both of them have more upside than their prices might indicate. If A.J. Green can't get back to his previous level of performance or if he holds out, I, I think there's a lot of appeal there. A similar situation for me is with the Giants. I'm still spreading out the picks I use in drafts between Sterling Shepard, Golden Tate, and Darius Slayton, and even Evan Ingram, because I think the Giants are going to be playing a lot from behind. A lot of those guys have injury concerns, so it isn't hard to imagine a scenario where one or two of those guys ends up getting a lot more targets than we have projected. Uh, I, I still do need to get more shares of Darius Slayton to balance out my exposure, especially because he might be the only one in this group who doesn't have real injury concerns. Uh, but but that's my own personal problem. I, I think in general, this is just a, a group of receivers that, that's worth targeting at their cost because I think there's room for them to to move up uh, if the you know the dominoes fall in the right way. Yeah. Uh, another guy I want to point out who's not from as crowded of a pass catching room, unless you count the dozen or so tight ends the team has, <laughs> is Anthony Miller, who to me went surprisingly low. Uh, he's got an average ADP of, I think, about wide receiver 56 in the Scott Fishbowl, which is, you know, we keep referring to it, but it's our most recent sort of ADP data. And if, you know, none of those tight ends they have steps up or maybe Allen Robinson doesn't kind of step back to the the dominant player we remember from the 2015-2014 era, Miller could could really see a sizable workload there if that offense gets going again with either Nick Foles or not really believing this myself at the moment, but uh, a resurgent Mitchell Trubisky. Yeah, no, I'm totally with you on Miller. And I think even if Allen Robinson is that world beater that we've seen him be, there's still going to be a lot of potential targets for Miller in that passing game. Uh, I think 
Nick Foles theoretically being under center there helps Miller out a lot. The big question is how much is Tariq Cohen going to be used this year? There's a little bit of uncertainty there, and I think that's what's keeping Miller's price down. But I'm with you. I think that you know it's worth taking on that risk for the potential reward. Um, I want to throw out at least one more guy here. I don't know how many of these teams you want to do, but we talked about Kenny Stills as kind of a late-round value at the wide receiver position. But the Texans signed Randall Cobb this offseason, too, who I think could be a really sneaky fit, especially in PPR formats uh, with Deshaun Watson there and Bill O'Brien coming from the Belichick coaching tree. They've really they've tried to find that slot receiver role a number of times in the past, and it really hasn't hit Kiki Kuti and a couple of other guys there. So if Cobb can stay healthy, he's coming off of a decent season in a loaded Dallas passing attack. And with DeAndre Hopkins out of the picture, you know, whether those targets all go to Stills or Will Fuller or Randall Cobb, I mean, you might forget, but he put up, he had 55 catches, 828 yards, only get found the end zone three times, but certainly a season that showed he still has something left in the tank and could build upon and what should still be a very good Texans offense. Well, right. I mean, they still have Deshaun Watson there and Deshaun Watson is very, very good. I totally agree. I mean, you look at our SFB drafts uh, and it's, it's clear that we both believe in Deshaun Watson carrying those receivers to some extent. We both took Darren Fells. We both took Kenny Stills. I took Will Fuller in SFB. Like That's an offense I want exposure to, and I've been preaching that a lot on this show. So I'm glad that you're backing me up there. Uh, One other team to throw out. I hate to keep bringing it back to SFB, but the Jets, where uh, like I mentioned Denzel Mims earlier, I think Chris Herndon is also a very good candidate to overperform his volume expectation. And even if I'm wrong on those guys, maybe it's Brashad Perriman, but someone other than Jamison Crowder in that receiving group is going to have to step up and get a lot of volume. I would prefer to put my chips on Mims and Herndon, uh, just based upon the fact that Perriman is that deep threat. He's probably just not going to be able to see that many targets based upon the type of position he plays. But with that said, if Perriman does take that next step, you know, he's, he's had a rough career to this point, but he's starting to seemingly put it together uh, if he can hit enough of those splash plays it could be him too someone here is going to matter in the Jets receiving group yeah I actually like I thought Brashad Perriman uh he kind of became a meme for a while because he was drafted in the first round he had the unfortunate hairline on the draft night <laughs> and then never panned out in Baltimore but you look at the, his stat lines to end the season I mean I think he helped push a lot of people into the playoffs and fantasy leagues last year and potentially win some matchups And I thought even aside from just the numbers, watching a bunch of those games, he played some pretty good ball, was kind of progressing from just the typical straight line deep threat we thought of him as earlier in his career. But over the last four games, he went uh, three catches, 70 yards, one, five, 113 and three, seven, 102 and zero, and then five, 134 and one. So he was showing a little bit more of a diverse number one receiver skill set. And as you said, there's there's big question marks in that offense. I don't think he's a terrible guy either to, to throw some darts at. Yeah, the rub is that those stats did come with Tampa Bay. Now he's on the Jets, and we yes can't really true. trust Adam Gase. That that is one thing that we have learned <laughs> over the years. I do think Sam Darnold has has uh, more potential than perhaps we've seen um, in the Adam Gase offense. So hopefully, if you know he's got a good offseason workout and he's healthier and doesn't have you know mono and things like that, <laughs> he can reach for his potential a little bit more. And with uh, a bevy of weapons around him, maybe maybe he takes a step this year. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, you got any more receivers in this vein you want to talk about before we close things down? Uh, just give a shout out to the uh, perennial, perennially underrated Marvin Jones. Uh, yes. going at about wide, wide receiver 37. Not necessarily needing Kenny Galladay to take a step back to to shine again, but I think um, 
Marvin Jones is certainly a name to have circled uh, as, as a later round value pick that could turn in a very, very solid season. Yeah, he's like the known version of Anthony Miller, where you, the yeah. targets are there. We've seen him do it before, and for some reason, his price just hasn't adjusted right. appropriately. Just, it's really just always good to remind people he exists every yeah. now and again. Mar- Marvin Jones exists. That's a good bumper sticker or something. <laughs> all right, Alex, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, why don't you let folks know what you're working on, let them know where they can find you and all that good stuff. Yeah, well, I've been uh, a frequent contributor to 4 for 4's Player Debates, which you can find uh, through the 4 for 4 Twitter page and my Twitter page, at Alex Gelhar. They don't show up on author profiles because you've got multiple authors going head-to-head. I've taken on uh, the great Eric Moody a couple times. Uh, Dak Prescott versus Deshaun Watson was one of them. Uh, we did a Stefan Diggs versus A.J. Green, DJ Chark versus Terry McLaurin, trying to find two guys that are similar in ADP and making the case for either one. So it's kind of a good way to dive in deeper, get some specific stats on some of these guys and see who you maybe want to move up your own uh, draft board. And then as we get closer to the season, uh, I will have more and more content coming out on 4 for 4, some draft strategy, wide receiver articles, all sorts of stuff like that. So be sure to check out and keep an eye out for all of that. Great stuff. Uh, Yeah, listeners, go check it out. And uh, like I said, Alex will be making more appearances on the feed uh, in the coming weeks. So uh, get stoked for that too. Uh, Alex, thanks again for coming on. This has been a lot of fun. My pleasure. Let's do it again soon. Be sure to follow Alex on Twitter at Alex Gelhar. I'll link to those player debates he mentioned in the show notes, or you can just head over to 444.com on your browser of choice to check out all the great articles our writers have posted. Become a 444 subscriber if you're not one already. Give the podcast a positive rating and review if you're feeling generous. And stay tuned to my Twitter feed at Greg Sauce for information on the Superflex Best Ball Draft. I'm planning to stream later this week. That one should be a lot of fun. Otherwise, thanks as always for listening to the Most Accurate Podcast. We'll catch you next time. Adios. Adios.